Welcome to What's the Revolution, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can understand and embrace a healthier masculinity. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corporal. Dick Gregory's N-Word was the first book I read cover to cover as a child. I picked it up one day as I played in my father's office when I was uh, eight or nine. Page after page, I became entranced by Brother Gregory's words, those that detailed his life growing up in poverty and his daily experiences of racism and discrimination. I was too young to fully understand its impact, but as I grew older and read the passages again over time, they spoke loudly to me. That's what books do. That's what they're supposed to do, to make us think critically about our journeys, to open our eyes to new thoughts, new perspectives, or allow us to feel someone's joy, their sorrow, and to experience both their strengths and weaknesses. I wonder if Cedric Anderson, San Bernardino, or Steve Stevens, Cleveland, and now Kendrick's white, Austin, had if they had the opportunity to chronicle their stories, what would we learn? We might find out that their struggles had begun in childhood, or that they felt unloved, or they didn't have the right mentorship or guidance at those pivotal moments in their life. Or we might find out that the weight of prejudice, racism, and discrimination had taken their toll. That's what books do for us. They give us an inside peek into someone's world. Today, I am joined on the What's Your Revolution show by C. Erskine Brown, acclaimed author. His newest book is entitled A Cry Among Men, which can be purchased excuse me, on Amazon. Brother Brown, how you doing? I'm fine, Doc. How are you? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, man. I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to give us a call and uh, have this wonderful discussion today. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't know if you've listened to my show before, but uh, we ask every guest the most pivotal question. What's your revolution? Uh, on the one hand, that is a tough question. <laughs> and, on the, and on the other hand, it's, it's very simple for me. I am a diehard optimist. Uh I want to see the world change. I want to see people change. I particularly want to see black men's lives change, mm -hmm. i.e., this issue we have with race. Um, I have a young son. He's 15. And as I was taught by my father, he's going to experience some level of racism. And I, and I think my revolution is so our young people whom I've heard say racism no longer exists realize that it does still exist. It's alive. It's well. And we all need to come to grips with how to deal with it, what the root of it actually is. Right, right. No doubt. So understand, so your revolution is to basically prepare your son and prepare other black men to experience the world, you know, and to have their eyes open. Is that what I heard? Correct. 
I gotcha. I gotcha. I appreciate it, man. As I looked, you know, we're going to get to your book, man. And, uh, and I'm going to say this right now. Your, your book is amazing. But I want to know a little bit about you. I want to know a little bit about your journey, about your walk, and then we'll get into why this pivotal, critical, outstanding book was written. But what really stuck out to me, brother, is Erskine. Erskine, I've never, I've never heard that before. <laughs> I've, never that heard, I've never heard it. Tell me a little bit about Erskine. Erskine is my uncle's name, my mama's baby brother. Uh-huh. That's his first name. So she gave it to me. I got you. Now, a lot of, there are a lot of brothers in the islands named Erskine. Uh, Trinidad, Jamaica, uh, you, will, you will find quite a few brothers named Erskine down there. But uh, that's, the, that's the root of my name. You know, my, my Carolina, Virginia mom uh, gave me her baby brother's middle name. I got you. Which is, which is my, my, my middle name, which is his first name, I'm sorry. Right, right, right. And the C, I'm so, I might assume that the C stands for Charles. Is that correct? He is Charles. That's a great name, man. <laughs> That's a great name. I always ask brothers named Charles. Do they do they actually know what the what what Charles means? You know you know what it means. You know what? I, that was an assignment I had in in college. One of my professors gave me that assignment. Man, I'll be honest with you. I forgot what the research was. <laughs> Charles is actually the French version uh, of Carl. Uh, which is Germanic, and Carl means manly. It means masculine. Yes. Yeah, and so it's interesting that with your book and the, actually the, re the research that I do, it's almost that we are fulfilling uh, what our name means, this research and this, this conversation about what it means to be male, what it means to, black and, to be black and male and growing up in our country and developing in our country. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about your story, brother. You know, um, who are you? Who is C. Erskine Brown? I, Norfolk, Virginia boy. <laughs> Homeboy. Uh, Homeboy. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. I went off to Virginia State University and discovered that I was not going to be a doctor, so I became an English major. Mm. Uh, I was actually, based on our family's roots, trained to be a teacher, trained to be an English teacher. But I decided I didn't want to do that. Um, I left school and went into corporate. And I pretty much spent, I guess you would say, 20, 30 years in corporate sales. Uh, and I'm talking about some of the giants, uh, Hallmark, Xerox, uh, some of the biggest companies in their respective industries. I've sold to every level of uh, a person in in an account from CEO on down. I've sold to partners of law firms, yeah, litigation consulting, all the big trials. I've done that kind of stuff. So I've had a lot of interesting interaction from the floor level all the way to the top. Right, right. Um, I left corporate America. I am now kind of working as a teacher assistant. I guess you could call me semi-retired. <laughs> you, you can't be that um, old brother talking about semi-retirement. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it really, at the end of the day, it was more about me focusing on my passion, which is which is my writing. I got you. I got you. That's a good lead-in, man. 
So you talked about being an English major in school, and, and oftentimes English majors, history majors, you know, we don't end up in our field. I have a right. degree of history, degree in history from James Madison University, and was a history teacher for a little bit, but now psychologist and consultant, all the, all these different things. But right. you now have found your way back to your writing. So. What was that mode? What was that impetus for you to be an English major and, and now find yourself back writing? When I look back, I've always wanted to write. I can go home now and go into my old bedroom, which is still full of black light tanks and fishnets. <laughs> Are you talking about your? Are you talking about your home in Norfolk? Or are you talking about in New Jersey? No, 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 no. Home in Norfolk, man. What? <laughs> And I can see work that I did in junior high school. They call it middle school now, but junior high school, high school. I always wanted to write. I always enjoyed English, but I thought I wanted to be a doctor, um, doctor to make money. And I, I, fl I flirted with the idea of being an attorney. But when I got out of school, I continued to play around with writing. You know, here and there, I would take a course. I actually took a course in uh, screenwriting. I took a course in advertising, copywriting. All this is while I was in corporate sales. You know, I would take, I took some classes at NYU. And I, I loved it. I, you, know, you know, once you get that bug, you can't stop. Right, right. I mean, I love, I love words. And it's just one of those things that I like to see a sentence come together. In my book, when I wrote this book, I could actually take two hours, three hours on one paragraph. Right, right. And, and let me interject here just for one second. You said your love of words, man. <laughs> when we, <laughs> you know, when we did our, our pre-conversation a couple of days ago, and I was telling you I was reading the book, you did tell me that I was going to have to have a dictionary uh, beside me. And, uh, you know, I think that I'm a smart man. I think that my vocabulary is, is you know, is, is quite high. Um, However, <laughs> however, you know, I was like, why, why can't you just say stubborn? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? What, what, what was that word? Absundery? You know? I don't know if you could say called hell, but I caught it from everybody who's read the book. Man, let me tell you, brother. I was like, wait a minute. I don't know what this word is. <laughs> well, in a, good, in a good way. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, because what happens, and we're going to get to that, because I don't want to spoil, I don't want to spoil all this, but your love of words, and, and I think that is a creative piece that we have to think about. When you write, you want to draw the list, you want to draw the reader in, and you right. also want to educate them. And this, I think that your book, as we begin to talk about that, is an educational journey in itself. Because if you really want to get the, 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 the thoroughness, the, the input, the, the, the graphicness of this, of this novel, you've got to understand why you chose those words. And right. so, um, but first, tell me about, you know, you say middle school. What was your first writing experience? What did you write about? I wrote, I remember very clearly. I don't remember which one it was, but my mother used to like Days of Our Lives. Yeah, yeah, almost, my grandmother did. Grand Stella loved that, man. And I actually wrote kind of like a play, kind of like a soap opera in junior high school. I can't find it, but I remember doing it. And I remember 
I don't know if you remember those kind of small cassette recorders. Yeah. But I had one of those, and I used to put on play and create a fight scene in my bedroom with the noise. <laughs> a fight scene? You fighting ghosts? You fighting ghosts there? <laughs> yeah, I created a fight scene. But that was where the love of, of, of writing in movies all began. This was in junior high. This was in junior high school. Give a shout-out to, shout to your junior high school and your high school brother in Norfolk. I know we got some people in Norfolk listening. Rosemont Junior High. <laughs> and Northview High. Northview High, man. Northview High. The, yeah. pi- the pilots, aren't they the pilots? Northview Pilots, yes. Yeah, okay. Go ahead, brother. Um, and, and what, let me back up about the words. I also chose certain words because you can't do it in screenwriting. When you write a screenplay, it's very lean, it's very direct, it's very. A, a producer and a director or a reader, they don't want to have to rack their brain for what a word means. So, and in a screenplay, you have to show it. You can't tell it. Right. So I took liberties when I wrote this book because I could tell whatever I wanted to tell. You know, I guess that was my way of snubbing Hollywood to say, you know what, if, if I can't show I'm certainly going to tell. I'm going to do both because the words, I hope the words that I use give you the visual. Yes, it does. So you can feel the pain when you're reading it. Right, right, right. You listen to the What's Your Revolution show uh, on WBOK 1230 AM. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Corpru, talking to acclaimed author C. Erskine Brown about his book. Let's get into that, about his book. A Cry Among Men, man. And let me tell you, uh, I began reading this book a couple of days ago, and I, please forgive me that I know the show was happening to get busy, but I got a chance to sit down and really, really, really sit down and read this book, man, and could not put it down. I could not put it down. Like, okay, don't bother me. <laughs> I'm going to carve out some time. And then it was like, oh, this time's over. I had Alexa talking to me every, I was like, give me 40 minutes. Alexa, give me a little bit more time. <laughs> right. Yeah, give me a little bit more right. time so I can read. You know, this book is fascinating. Again, A Cry Among Men. What was the impetus for writing this book? It's it's crazy. I can't give the hook away, and you know what the hook is. I do know what the hook is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I had that dream. Right. And it was when I was going through a horrible time. About 25 years ago, right? probably 30 years ago, I, I, I mean, when I say horrible, horrible, it was a horrible time. I was going back and forth with my manager. I told him he was a racist. It, it was ridiculous. There was there was an email back then. Well, there was email that was coming along, but right. it was, right. you know, it was you know, stuff back and forth. Meetings, I'm flying out here, I'm flying out there, meetings here and there. But I basically told him, I said, listen, man, I don't believe you have my best interest. And he said, well, why? I said, because I think you're racist. And it was that company that I worked for, I won't call their name, but it was a huge company in their marketplace. And it was a bad time, and I had a nightmare so bad, man, and I had to do the research as to why I had that nightmare. And it came to me 
probably after six months to a year, I had already written one screenplay, which was a which which was about uh, what I believe black men should be doing with these young brothers out here. Right. That's another story altogether. So I wrote this screenplay. Guy in Hollywood loved it, and he says, "I'm gonna help you get this made." Mind you, this is over 25 years ago. He sent it to some people. God's called me and said, man, I love your writing. We cannot make this. And I said, why not? It's just way too controversial. It is. <laughs> I mean, when I say I'm not agreeing with what that person was saying, but it is controversial in a sense that you are you're going to be sitting in a place when you read this book. Right. And if you and you're not going to be ready. You're, you've done such a good job in the beginning of the book that when the hook hits you, you're like, whoa, <laughs> right? And, th and, and think about it. We're not giving the hook, but, but think about 25 years ago and the way that this story is written. I mean, from a number of communities, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Right. We're not ready for We're not ready for this. Right. We are not ready. A, I'm sorry. I actually no, had a woman, ahead. a producer, call me. She says, my God, Charles, I love it, but we can't make it. I said, why not? And she had a deal. They had a, it was a production company that had a deal with Universal. She said, we just can't. She said, because the man that you're talking about in this story, I work for that kind of guy. <laughs> wow. So, so basically she was telling me, I work, for a, I work for a white man who hates black people. So she said, I honestly couldn't sleep for a week. And, Doc, I will tell you, people have called me, people have texted me, people have sent me Facebook posts, and people have, in book clubs, people have cried reading this book. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see why. I can definitely see why as I was uh, continuing my reading today and getting to the the high points and the, you know the low points of the book. I mean, I I just found the pages just turning and turning and turning. And because you you've done, I have to go back. You've done such a great job in the beginning of the book to really detail how your main character has ascended. You know, and, and so if I can give this the way, the main character is a successful African American man who's working. So he's you in a sense. He's you, a successful African-American man who has ascended his way up corporate America. He's being, right. you know, he's been gloated. You know, he's being loved. He's had, you know, all of these things thrown at him. Um, why characterize his story in the beginning that way? What are you trying to show? I wanted to write a story about a positive brother. Mm -hmm. And I'm not taking a shot at some of the work that's out there. And I don't know if I'm should even use this term, but for lack of a better word, and the word I've used in, in my book clubs and on my side, I didn't want to write a Chitlin Circuit book. A Chitlin Circuit book. I got you. I, right. I didn't want to write a hood book. I didn't want to write a shoot 'em up bang bang book. Now, that's the market. And I'm not taking a shot at those people. But for me, I wanted to write something that would stretch me. I wanted to write, and we can say, we can say Don Wilcox is a brother on Wall Street. He's an investment banker. Right. I knew nothing about investment banking. 
<laughs> I wanted to write. I wanted to write something about something that I had to do some research on. Now I didn't get so granular in the technical parts of the book, but I got involved in it enough for people to understand. Because I've actually asked a woman who read the book who works at a huge firm on Wall Street. She says you nailed it. She says and you you stayed just where you needed to be. As to not get too technical. Right. Don, Don does what I did. I pitched all day long. So he's pitching for business to merge companies because he's an M&A guy. I pitch to sell boxes or to sell consulting services. The gig is the same. You got to get up. You got to be prepared. You have to stand in front of an audience, usually a bunch of white guys. And you got to pitch why you deserve to have their business. Right. Right. That was my life for almost 30 years. And that's the thing. And, and think about the spaces. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pull back for a second. Think about the spaces that many of successful young black men, older black men, middle-aged black men have found themselves in, whether it be mm -hmm. academia, whether it be corporate America, um, whether it be wherever, in any space where you find yourself where you're the only brother and you have ascended to this space where there's no one else that looks like you. I, rem I remember sitting in faculty meeting at uh, the university that I worked and being the only brother in the college. Uh -huh. And I remember bringing money in. I remember all of these, these different things and waiting to be lauded from my peers and it never really coming, you know. Right. Never really coming, but still had to get still had to get up every day and do what I do, you know, right. and and to have something held over me by some people who, when they were going up for certain things, had not even achieved what I had achieved at this point. Exactly. And so it was quite interesting to sit in that space. And even now in the spaces that I find myself in with the consulting work that I do, it's still me having to convince others that this work, particularly around boys and men of color and equity is so important because we still need to be in those spaces because if we're not, right. they're not having those conversations. Right. And so I found that character. I actually found myself, you know, ingratiating myself with the character because I was like, hmm, I, I, I feel you. I feel that ascension and success, but also having the proverbial knife just sitting there waiting to be pushed in. Understand that this book is not what I've written to vilify white folks. Say it that again. Was, Say it that again. To do that. It was, however, written to show white folks how we view racism. And it was also written to show brothers, I don't care who you are, where you've been. It don't stop. So don't forget about who you are. That's the key, that's the key point. That's the key point. That <laughs> I think that we need to reiterate that. That Don't forget that right. you've done well. You've pushed hard. You've got the advanced right. degrees. But right. at any point in time, you've got to, you know, as the, uh, uh, the Navy guys on the ship, you know, as the planes are taking off. You've got to, as they say, you've got to keep your head on a swivel to right. make sure that you know where everything is so you can be well prepared. The funny, you know, and I say that 
is that have you ever seen um, what's the Denzel movie um, where he is what, what what is the Denzel movie? The Equalizer. Exactly. Thank you, yeah. Rachel. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. My great producer and my uh, engineer, my amazing man, Jazz, is looking at me like, The Equalizer. But the one, the one thing that he does when he walks into any room is he, he's, his head is on a swivel because he's always prepared. You know, and if he has to fight, he's got to fight. And so I right. think that, and that's what you're saying, that the, the, the book is a reality tale. It's a rea almost a reality show. And for us to see, these are the things that you need to be prepared for. But I'm going to give something away. Can I give just one little small Man, do your away? thing. It's your book, man. We're going we to promote it. We want you to get the most out of it. You've read this part. After his pr promotion was announced, he sat in his office and he heard Martin Luther King's speech. Right. And he said, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. But he ain't. Because he slipped into the okie doke <laughs> like a lot of brothers do. Right, right. Do you, well, let me ask you, you. I mean, you wrote the book. You wrote the, you wrote the book. I didn't I didn't get that right there. I've, that he he slipped into the okie doke. I, he said, "I'm free at last." Are are you saying that's that's the point that you were trying to make? That he he at that after that he he let he let down his guard. He let down his guard because he believed he was a part of the club. Ah, a true part of the club. Don't get don't get it twisted. <laughs> I know I know a bunch of brothers that are killing it. But I can assure you they've been through something. Right. Because they, they told me. Um, and that's not to say that we can't achieve. But we need to be achieving in greater numbers. We're not achieving in the numbers that we should be. And a lot of it is not necessarily because of who we are and our talent. A lot of it has to do with access. Right. Access, and that, and that's the key word. How do how do we get how do we begin to gain access, as well as to gain the protections that we need to maintain that access? And right. I think that's I think that's the critical question, and that that means that we need to have more of us in spaces so that we can protect each other. But in making that. Service in New Orleans has issued a severe thunderstorm warning for Central St. Bernard Parish in southeastern Louisiana, southeastern Jefferson Parish in southeastern Louisiana, northwestern Plaquemines Parish in southeastern Louisiana until 3.30 p.m. Central Daylight Time. At 2.56 p.m. Central Daylight Time, severe thunderstorms were located along a line extending from near Poitras to near Myrtle Grove to 15 miles northeast of Leaville, moving east at 45 miles an hour. Hazard, 60 miles an hour wind gusts and penny-size hail. Source, radar indicated. Impact, expects damage to roofs, siding, and trees. Locations impacted include Port Sulphur, Wangle, Louisiana Hash, Empire, Poitras, and Grand Isle Man. For your protection, move to an interior room on the lowest floor of a building. Repeating, a severe thunderstorm warning has been issued until 3.30 p.m. Central Daylight Time for the following parishes in Louisiana, Jefferson, 
Plaquemines and St. Bernard. Erskine, you back with me, brother? I'm good. We're here. Man, we in, we in the midst of, you know, it's New Orleans, bro. You know, we in the midst of uh, oh, I get it. spring season, man. We going through a, a torrential downpour and thunderstorm, man. So, you know, making sure folks down here are protected. We just had a little small emergency alert, brother. That's all. That, that, yeah, that's we, it. We don't want another Katrina. No, no, no. Yeah, look, man, you can't even say that on my show, man. <laughs> my fault. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to go to break in a few minutes, brother. Um why is this book important right now? It was important for me because it healed me. Okay. Tell, tell, tell me a little bit about I was, that. I, I believe it will heal anybody who will read it if they open their heart and face what's being said. Uh, it healed me because I guess you could say I was one of those brothers who was walking around with a chip on my shoulder. I still on occasion get a get accused of it by my wife. You must be a capper. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna do. <laughs> it's all uh, good, brother. But I don't know if I get accused with a shit too. Yeah, I know that's right. <laughs> but um, the idea of when I wrote the book was none of what it is now. Right. It was a book. It was to entertain. Then it became something else. It became scripture beginning of every chapter. It became me doing some real soul searching and reading and deep research, spiritual research, about the root, the real root of racism. Mm. And the real, the real root of racism, I don't know if you want me to touch this yet, but the real root of racism is not necessarily the man looking at you. Now, I'm not going to take your audience to, to Bible class or to Bible study. Do what you do, brother. Room. Do what you do, man, because I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated, as you just said, is that you start each chapter with a scripture. And right. I almost I almost found myself in the beginning not, you know, reading the scripture. But, brother, hold on. Right. We're going to take a quick break, man, and I want to unpack that, why the scriptures are so important. We're going to be okay. right back. You've been listening to the What's Your Revolution show on WBOK, 1230 a.m.
That was Irvin Mayfield and Cirque du Freak, world famous, Grammy Award winning, winning Irvin Mayfield and Cirque du Freak with his song Swerve. Tune in to Real Talk with Rachel today at 4 to win tickets to Irvin Mayfield's Fest After Party, which we know is going to be an amazing time. This is the What's Your Revolution show. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. Appreciate those who are staying with us this afternoon. I am talking to acclaimed author C. Erskine Brown, diving into his new book, A Cry Among Men. Brother Erskine, let, let's keep this conversation going, man. You, you talk about, yeah, you 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 talk about, you know, racism and discrimination, how that plays out in the book, and you kind of lead the reader in each chapter with a scripture, right? Why do you do that? Why is the scripture so important, particularly as a as a lead-in, maybe even a metaphor for what you're trying to say in each chapter? Right. I um I didn't want to write. I didn't want to bring a sanitized look at racism to my readers. Uh, and by that I meant because racism is ugly. It's hard. It's mean, it's nasty, it hurts, and it destroys not just the person who experiences the act of racism. So if you look deeper in the book, the book is not just about what happens to the character, but it's about that ripple effect that goes outward from him. Right. And we see that now when it happens to a kid, when it happens to someone at work, all the things that happen in the news, they don't happen to just that one family. They happen to people at the court. They have people at police stations, the families, the, the extended families, and then eventually gets to us. And then it becomes how Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. became. Right, right. So... The thing about race and racism, it's been long it's been around for a long, long time. But if you take it back, and I'm answering your question, if you take it back, everything is rooted in the devil. Mm. Anything that ain't good is rooted in the devil. So every scripture pretty tells you, not pretty much, every scripture tells you exactly what is going to happen. So when you read that, if you're not a person who reads the Word, it is my prayer that you begin to read the Word so you can begin to see what's going on in this world and it has already been written. Right, right. So not only giving us an educational lesson with your uh, (laughs) expansive vocabulary, you're also giving us a spiritual lesson in hopes to spark a revolution for some of us who maybe fallen, some of the fallen who have not gone right. and, and, and sought the word. Right. And so that's a, that, that, that's a wonderful ploy right. as we begin to think about our, ourselves and how we then see ourselves within whoever the character that, you know, we fit right. with, possibly. But then the word, how, how, how do I couch this in the word? And the word, it, are you saying that the word is foretelling us? That, yeah. Is that what you're saying? The word at the beginning of every chapter tells you exactly what's going to happen. Right. 
And anybody who doesn't believe in God or the Bible, if you read that scripture, the scripture and then read the book, you'll know that the Bible and the Word of God is real. Mm. Because the things that are happening in the book is the stuff that is happening right now. Right, right. And what you're saying that by using the scripture is that the scripture gives you a guide. It is telling you these things that they may happen, but you also use the scripture to seek a way out of this because you, right. you have couched your main character in this man who is faithful. Right. And it's interesting why I love this book, and I, I have to say this, is that many of the themes that we have talked about on our show previously as I look at my wonderful producer are in your book. They are, they are in your book because we, we, we've talked about spirituality and how being rooted in the word and how you can use it as a shield. You know, we, we talk about that. We talk about the issues of masculinity that, that the book plays out. And, you know, it's interesting when I, when I move to that piece, the issues of masculinity that play out and uh, of unhealthy and healthy masculinity that plays out within your book, you know, particularly right. with the white male characters. Right. Which is quite interesting, and I, and I loved how you did not play into the stereotypical aspects of black male masculinity within the book, particularly with right. your main character. Why did you do something like that? Because there are a lot of brothers out here who love God. Mm -hmm. a lot of brothers out here who love their wives and their children. But a lot of what you read and see will have you believe that all we want to do is chase skirts, drink liquor, smoke weed, and spend our money on expensive things. Now we do that. We do do that. I mean, we we spend our thing. We spend our money on expensive things. <laughs> I'm a couch that right there. End it right there. But I was trying to paint a picture of a man who was after God's heart. Right. And you see that. You see that time and time again. Right. Time and time again. Even through the stress, even through the strife that he has gone through after the after the after the mea culpa that happens to him. And yeah. still entrenched in his spirit and his faith. And that's critical because as as we go through these times of strife, you know, and, uh, and Bishop Love would say, we have to fall down to our knees. And I'm sure right. that Bertha Corper would love to hear me say that, that we must <laughs> fall down to our knees and, and raise our gaze up to the sky in prayer right. to the Lord. Right. That we will experience this and as use this as our armor. Use this as our God because right. going back to what you just said, the scripture in your book is foretelling, but it is right. also an, a means of education. I'm going to hope. So you will always see, also see, if he gets tripped up, almost gets tripped. Right. I'll say that. Almost gets tripped up. And, and, and that's interesting because even as we struggle, we will fall away from that. Right. We, right. Will, we actually may even curse God. But how could you have put me in this space? How could this traumatic event you know, not giving away too much. How would you bestow this traumatic event on me? I'm successful. Yes. I've made it. I have struggled. Why now? Why this? Right. And what is the saying? Why now? Why me? Why not me? Why not me? And Scott represents the devil. Mm. 
You gotta read. Yeah, you gotta read the book to see who Scott is. But go on, brother. <laughs> but he represents the devil. And I don't know how far you've gotten, but if you really look deep, you will see that that fight, that God devil fight. Right. Right. You will see that black white fight. You will see that man against himself fight. Mm. Mm, the struggle, that internal you struggle. All, uh, you will all the dynamics that brothers go through on a daily basis. And regardless of how much money a cat makes, he is struggling with something. Right. Right. Even with his beautiful wife and nice home and, and all of these things. And, and as I was telling my producer today, if you, if you go out and get this book, A Cry Among Men, you are going to be able to sit and read that book and then take your, you're going to be catapulted into the scenery because you have done a great job in depicting and describing every little nuance of every character. That's what I loved so much about the book because I got, I got to understand who they were, what they looked like, what they smelled like, <laughs> which, was, which was crazy. Which, you know, and so, and even understanding where they were, their hatred, their love, their joys, their strengths, their weaknesses, all of these things are couched in how you, how you describe and how you use your words. And so, which is an amazing thing. What were you hoping to gain? What, not even not what were you hoping to gain? Now, as people read your book and understanding this good versus evil, this uh, black versus white, racism versus non-racism, what are you hoping to gain down the road from this book? A real conversation about race. Because a lot of folks don't want to deal with it. You have pockets of people who are willing to have the conversation. Um, I'm not trying to be Martin. I'm not trying to be Coach. I'm not trying to be Malcolm. I'm just trying to be this guy who's using the gift that God gave them to tell a story that I hope will get people to have honest conversation about why black folks and white folks continue to struggle. And it's not all of them. Well, when I hear what I heard on my way to work up in, what's that park up in Boston, the, 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 the baseball field, where they were throwing peanuts at, at Adam the Jones. Exactly. I mean, man, it's 2017. They're throwing peanuts at a, at a, a highly paid baseball player, calling them the N-word. Right, right. In Boston. So, in Boston. In Boston. Yeah, in Boston, Boston. You're listening right. to the What's Your Revolution show. I am Dr. Charles Corpru, WBOK, 1230 AM, talking to acclaimed author C. Erskine Brown about his book, A Cry Among Men. And as you just said, brother, good brother, you know, a real conversation about race. Now, I got to tell you, brother, this is going to spark <laughs> some conversations um, because you, you're going in. I mean, you're you're, yeah. you're you're going in. So what does that real conversation look like? If I'm reading this, I got this in my book club, and I'm reading this, what kind of conversation do you want us to have? I've had done a number of book club discussions. I want to talk, I want more men to read this book. 
Women are reading the book left and right. And brothers are reading it too. I want white men to read it. I want everybody to read it. But when I have these book club discussions, everybody says exactly the same thing. How could you? How could you? <laughs> why did you why did you have to go there? <laughs> are you talking about are you talking about that seminal moment in the book? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why did you why did you have to go there? But most people understand metaphorically speaking, especially brothers, that's how we feel when we come home from work. <laughs> the proverbial <laughs> yes, yes. All of these various themes, as you you know, all of these various things have come out. The proverbial, yeah. And for those who have not read the book, uh, and you want to, you want to know what that you know that moment is, that that seminal moment in the book, when um, that we're talking about, uh, it it is going to be eye opening. It is going to shock you. It is it is going to shock you. It is going to say whoa. But if you are using this as a metaphor, then it is quite truthful. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. It is. It is. It is quite truthful from an evil from an evil perspective, as you said, from a devilish perspective. It is quite <laughs> shocking because you don't expect that. But in my mind, people don't remember things unless unless it smacks them around. <laughs> That's gonna smack them around. <laughs> That is that is definitely going to smack them around. So you talked about having these conversations, uh, calling into book clubs. What are they saying? They love it. Uh, they say they love it. They say they understand it. They say they love his wife mm. and how she held up. They're saying they love that somebody has written a book about a brother and they question some other things that I can't mention. But the book has a lot of little dynamics. And I'm telling you the subtext. I got to be honest. After I read it, after finishing, I couldn't believe some of the stuff I put in there. <laughs> <laughs> because of the, the subtext. The meaning that you got to dig down deep and really see. And sometimes you might have to read it more than one time. Right. I, I plan on reading it a couple of times. To, to get it. But there's certain things that are not on the surface, but they're two or three levels deep. Right, right. What are some and of the... I like say, this oh, I'm sorry, I'm time. sorry. Go ahead, because go ahead. this book started out of something else altogether different. Right. So they're saying, they're, the book clubs, readers are saying that they love it. What are some of the critiques? What are some of the, what are some of the things that they're saying that, mm, I don't know, brother? The only, and I'll be honest, the only critique that I've gotten is the one you opened with, the words. The words, really? <laughs> the words. It's a lesson. <laughs> it, it, it is definitely a lesson. Uh, and I think about young boys who may read this book. Uh, and and the book is the book is probably for adolescents and above. Um, it, like you said, it's it's a hard read in the beginning, but it's so right. descriptive. It's going to take you in. It's going to grip you. Uh, but I will tell you something about those words. 
as a teacher assistant in the English class, 60 to 70 percent of those words are 12th grade vocabulary words. Right. Right. And, that, and that's the thing that I share with these book clubs. Another 10 percent, maybe, of the word of the day that I get on dictionary.com that comes to my phone. I gotcha. I gotcha. And the other 5% are words that I said, hey, I like that word. I know this is going to upset people, but I'm going to put it in there anyway. <laughs> That's what I love. Brother, we're going to take a call, man. We're going to take a call from one of my good, good friends and one of the brothers that gave me my start, man, Dr. Vibe. Dr. Vibe, how you how you doing, brother? How are you, Dr. Charles? What, what you, What's up with your revolution? Man, my revolution is, is, is wonderful, and I'm appreciative. Those who don't know, who haven't followed Dr. Charles Corporate, know, should know that Dr. Bob gave me my start. And I want to say thank you, thank you. We did a show together for almost two years on his radio network. Uh, wonderful time. I appreciate everything. It means a lot that you actually called in today, man. What's going on with you? Everything's going on. I know your time is running down, so I'll get right quick. I, I had a myriad of questions, but time is thin, so I'll get to one really quick. Go ahead. Uh, of Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown, you said that you, you mentioned in your comments that you want men to talk about men to talk about this issue. My question for you is are is in your opinion, do you feel America is ready to talk about race? And if not, what's it gonna take for America to get to talk about race? Right. Uh, Brother Erskine uh, uh, Dr. Val Erskine can't hear you, so I'm just gonna repeat the question. He's saying the question for you is, is America ready to talk about race? Once reading your book, and like you said, you want to have these real conversations, is America really ready to have these conversations about race? We're already having those conversations. Regardless of what your political affiliation is, in the last year and a half, those kinds of conversations have become more prevalent. Um. We're having those conversations. We just need to have those conversations in a civil manner. In a civil, and they got to be facilitated correctly. They, you're right. They right. have to be in a civil manner, and people have to be open and honest when having these conversations. But not everybody's right. ready because we are, we're still raw. We are raw, you know. Right. And you know, I don't know if I, you know, we, we've had some things happen down here in Louisiana over the last couple of. Uh, last couple of years and we just got some bad news you know uh -huh. and uh that'll be coming out later on but you know what happened down here last year and right. you know and 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 it's louisiana and right. you know even in new orleans we still have this divisiveness and and, and you know i i can talk about this about the fight over taking down the confederate monuments you know, and we've got people standing, you know, standing with Confederate flags and fighting that these monuments should not be taken down and right. that the workers and people have to walk and walk in secret because of right. threats to their lives. So it's a great question, Dr. Vibe. Are we really ready to have this conversation in a civil manner to really talk about race? You know, we've got some wonderful uh, institutions out there, the People's uh, Institute for um, – People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. Thank you, Rachel, who I love. My, my good brother, Ron Chisholm. We've got the Racial Equity Institute in Greensboro, North Carolina, who are doing very similar things. We're having these discussions. And if you haven't taken one of their classes to really understand what race is and how race has played out in our country since its inception, right. 
you know, really understanding how race and has been manipulated to marginalize and impress people. So we are still raw. And so, I, Dr. Vibe, it's a great question, man. Do you have anything else, man? I know you're always bringing it for us. <laughs> well, my, my next conversation piece is, and maybe I missed it because I came into the conversation late. Who is the author's target market on this book? Because it sounds like he does come from a Christian background. And if he does, nothing. That's great. Then if it is, how can someone who isn't aligned with God or have no knowledge of God get into this book? I got you. Erskine. I heard it. Okay, got you. Go ahead. That's a, that's a great question. This book is for everybody. This book is for black, white, brown, yellow. And you don't necessarily have to be a Christian. What this book will do, I believe, if you are a Christian and you do take the time to read those scriptures, after reading the book, can you see what each one of those scriptures said Based on the chapter, you'll be led to pick up a Bible to get a greater understanding of what's going on around you and how you can live your life. Um, and I just want to, you know, step back a second. We are ready for that conversation. What we need to do is stop having that conversation alone, meaning just brothers having a conversation, just white folks having a conversation. It needs to be a conversation in a room, and everybody in that room has to be prepared for the pain. Not the physical pain, but when you have a conversation about race, there's a lot of emotional pain. There's years and years of hurt. There's generations of hurt. And until you are ready to feel the pain, you probably won't. Right. But I, but I believe there are a lot of people who are ready to feel that pain. Because you can look on Facebook, everybody's got something to say <laughs> about what's going on in America. Right. We're, we're more engaged now as a people than I've ever seen. So I believe now is right. I agree with you. I think that as we engage, we, we've got to get in spaces where the conversation is real. And that, and heard, and you're right, they have to be in diverse and equitable and inclusive spaces where we un can understand each other. But you're right, people have to be ready. They got to be willing to go in. They got to be willing to go in and prepare that this is not going to be an easy conversation. And when you read this book, and if this book is going to be this jumping off point, you've got to understand that it's not going to be an easy conversation. But I think what the book does is that with all of the themes that you have presented in a very structured and a very detailed and very collaborative manner is that it allows you to see a perspective that waking up black and male and successful does not mean that you still will not be vilified, that you will still not be taken down or attempted. The attempts to take you down are still there and that you have to be protected. You have to keep your head on a swivel and you have to surround yourself with people, right. with other revolutionaries, I would say. You have to surround yourself with other revolutionaries who are going right. to make sure that you can continue to ascend because you have to ascend together. 
Definitely. Dr. Vive, I appreciate you calling in, brother. It means so much to me. You know, Thank what, you, sir. what's going on? What's, Dr. Vive, what's going on in your show real quick? <laughs> just more epic conversations. Uh, it's just uh, and uh, potentially in the next few weeks, uh, a TV show starting in the Toronto area that I'll be hosting. Wonderful. Wonderful. You can catch uh, it's uh, at Dr. Vibe at his is Dr. Vibe dot com or is it the Dr. Vibe dot com? Website address www.thedrvibeshow.com. Gentlemen, a pleasure and an honor to share with you. No, God not, bless. Thank you. Thank you, man. Take care, brother. Erskine. Erskine, are you still with me? It seems like we might have we might have lost him. We might have lost him. It looks like our time is running short anyway. We want to thank C. Erskine Brown for coming in on the show with me today. His book, A Cry Among Men, acclaimed author, C. Erskine Brown. Please go out and check it out. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. I want to give a shout-out to Jazz, my man behind the wheels and steels, <laughs> my engineer, my great producer, Rachel Graham, and WVOK for supporting the What's Your Revolution show. Always, always shout-out to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation for their unwavering support of the show. And as I say every week, ask yourself this one important question. What's your revolution? Have a great week. Take care. <laughs>